about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Bible now. Tonight's Bible reading comes from Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 to chapter 5 verse 10. My name is Rachel. I'll be reading to you and it appears in the handy leaflet from when you came in or um, there's pew Bibles and phones etc. So Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to chapter 5 verse 10. Therefore since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, hi again. Uh, Can I say before I start, I'm just really, uh, I was really encouraged to hear how well the women's breakfast went yesterday. I know some of you were there. Thanks so much to those who organized it. Obviously wasn't there. But um, I saw some photos, and it just looked like a great time. So, well done, and isn't that great? Let's pray as we think about that incredible passage of Scripture. Our Lord, make us confident to approach you, though that is a fearsome thing. In Jesus' name, amen. How confident do you feel to approach God in prayer? How confident do you feel? Maybe this is something you've done a lot of in the past. Maybe you're new to it. But be honest, how, conf- how, how bold do you feel to do that? For a lot of people, I reckon, the answer is not very confident. Many people I meet, including a lot of Christians don't actually feel very confident before God. 
and that affects their confidence to pray, to actually speak to him. Now, sometimes this is because people just don't know how to do it. Like, they've never really been, it's never really been explained, and they just actually don't know what to do, and that's fair enough, and we would love to help you get started, if that's you. Um, It's not rocket science, you'll be pleased to know. But sometimes, maybe even often, the source of this lack of confidence is something different, something a bit deeper. It has to do with a sense of unease that makes us hesitate. It's all very well to talk about prayer, right? to talk about doing this, but can I really do it? Can I really come before God and approach him? One problem, there's a whole range of reasons for this, but one problem is that we know too much about ourselves. We know our own fears and doubts. We know the secret parts of our lives we wouldn't want anybody else to see. We know the thoughts thought in our half-waking on our own. We know our secret resentments and anger and the desires that we let our minds rest upon for too long. We also know things we've said and done of which we now feel ashamed. Things that feel like they've left a stain on us. Other people can't see it, but we feel like it's still there. Sometimes our hesitancy to approach God is not about anything in particular. Actually, it's just a vague sense of uneasiness and inadequacy and weakness. We just feel like we're not really worthy to stand there, to speak up. Some of us have this sense of unworthiness, even maybe worthlessness. Some of us have it kind of baked into us deep by the habitual indifference and cruelty of others who should have done better by us. But it all makes us hard. It makes us hard to be confident. It makes us hesitant to approach. These are some of the reasons, I reckon, that people sometimes seek the help of a priest. You see, a priest is someone who can stand between us and God, someone who by some right or other, for some reason or other, maybe it's about their training or their knowledge or maybe their spiritual discipline and their practice. To be honest, we don't really care what it is, just as long as they've got it. This person can breach the gap. They can cover the distance between ordinary people like us and God. This instinct to look for a priest is actually a very common thing. It's not just a Christian thing. Any religious leader or professional will have some familiarity with this, I reckon. I'm actually, in most parts of the world, I'm what is known as an Anglican priest. Um, In Sydney, priests are called presbyters. But no one has a clue what that means. So mostly, we're just priests. Certainly, if you go anywhere else, they're like, you're a what? A a presbyter what? I'm a priest. That's fine. And sometimes, you know, I sense people treating me like this. They have this instinctive hopefulness that somehow... I might be a kind of point of access to the spiritual, the divine. 
You know, this hopefulness that people have, it's one of the things that makes any abuse by clergy or other religious leaders so deeply despicable. Because it's the abuse of a unique kind of vulnerability, a fear and hesitancy before God. It puts people like me in a position of power and to abuse that is a a hateful thing. Okay, what do you reckon I'm going to say about this hesitancy, this unease, and this instinct to seek, to seek the help of a priest? What do you reckon I'm going to say? Some of you, I think, will be expecting me to say all of that is unnecessary. Don't worry about it. You don't need to do that. Don't fear. Don't hesitate. Just approach. Some of you may have never felt any hesitancy before God at all, and you'll be expecting your confidence to be robustly reaffirmed. Well done, you. But I'm not going to do any of that. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to say that these instincts are actually right. They're right. There are reasons for our unease. And even more surprising than that, we really do need the help of a priest. But the good news is we have one. And thank God, it is not me or any other religious person. It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. He is the priest we need, but he really is a priest. I need him as much as you do. And he can make us bold to approach the throne of God. And what we're going to do this evening is just unpack that thought kind of carefully. So come with me and and let's see what I'm talking about in this extraordinary passage we read from the book of Hebrews. It'll take us a little while to walk through it, but I really think it's worth it. Okay, so it's printed on your sheets. I'll put the key passages up on the screen as well. Uh, And they're in the Bible, of course. Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 14. So we've picked up a passage right in the middle of quite a long book, the book of Hebrews. You could do worse than to go away and read it tonight because it's all about this. But because we've just picked one passage, fair warning, there are going to be things here that we're not going to be able to go into properly. If you are hoping for a sermon on Melchizedek that finally kind of unpacks that guy, you're about to be bitterly disappointed. But go on and read you know, Genesis 14 and chapter 7, and to be honest, even then you'll still be in the dark, but it's a start. It's a good start. But the main things in this passage, details aside, are actually not that hard to understand. Because what the writer wants to say, fundamentally, is, is just this. He wants to say that, that Jesus Christ has become a kind of ultimate priest, and that that ought to give us incredible confidence to hold on to the Christian faith and to come to God in prayer. So this is what he says in the first part of the passage, basically what I just said. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not 
have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Okay, so let's just observe the logic here. I've put the, the kind of logic bits in yellow. If you can't read that, don't worry, I'll show you in a different way in a second. But basically, it's a since then. Since we have a priest, let us hold firmly. Since we have one, let us then approach. Here's the logic. Since we have approached, let us hold firmly to the faith. We have a priest who has stood in our place. That's, that's me summing up the words, not exactly what he says. Let us then approach. The overall logic is clear. The fact that we have a priest, a high priest, should give us encouragement to press on and to approach God with confidence. Now, there's a lot in those verses that we could unpack, and we'll come back to some of it. But for now, what I want to do is to show that in what comes next, in the rest of our passage, what the writer does is start to fill out these ideas in more detail. So he begins by explaining what priests are meant to be like. So here's chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. It looks long, but don't worry, it's, it, it won't take us that long. Every high priest, he says, is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. So this, he says, this is what a high priest is meant to be like and to do. Now, all of this is taken from the Old Testament, from the books of Leviticus and Israel's experience of the priesthood. But to be honest, it's, it's actually pretty understandable. There are lots of things said here, but the basic ideas are simple. In order to be an effective high priest and be able to offer sacrifices for sins, a person has to have two qualifications. Two qualifications. The first is that the high priest has to be able to represent the people. He has to be able to represent the people. He has to be able to stand for the people and act on their behalf. This is why he's selected from the people. Did you see that right at the top? Right? He's, he's got to be one of the people. But more than that, the high priest also needs to kind of be meaningfully one of the people. He needs to understand them and be able to relate to them. He has to be able to genuinely speak for them. And the writer says that he can do that because he's weak like them. He's able to deal gently, see it says, with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. He says that's obvious from the fact that the priest has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the people's, right? If he has to offer sacrifices for his sins, he's obviously like them. So that's the first requirement for a priest. It has to be, represent the people. The second is that a high priest cannot take this honor on himself, right? You can't just step up as high priest you can't even just be elected. No, you have to be appointed by God. Although the high priest is the people's representative, his ability to fulfill that role is not just in the people's hands, it's God's gift. Actually,
actually an interesting echo of this in the way um, our political system works. When somebody gets elected as an MP, they're not actually a member of parliament until they're appointed by the queen. Well, not the queen anymore, the king and the governor general. Um, that bit, you know, it's normally just people don't even pay attention because it's kind of automatic, but it is there. It's all, they have to be appointed and with God, it kind of matters that bit. God has to call and appoint the high priest. So they're the two qualifications. Now what happens now is that the writer begins to explain how both of these things, they're both true of Jesus, but in a weird way, in a strange and unexpected way. But ultimately, he says, the way they're true of Jesus is actually better. So he begins with the second point about being called to this task by God. That, he says, is, that's exactly what happened to Jesus, but in a special way. Have a look at it from verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, and he says in another place, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, as I said at the start, we're not going to get into this at great length. What I want us to see is actually just the big picture of what the writer's doing here. He, he brings together here quotations from two Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, you can look, look them up if you want, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. They are big psalms. Right? The psalms, are, it's the kind of hymn book of ancient Israel. And you know the whole early church and the whole of the Jewish people knew these psalms. And these are big psalms that speak about the Messiah. And the early church knew them and they thought they were about Jesus. But he does something interesting. With Psalm 2, he quotes the normal bit. You are my son, today I've become your father. But with Psalm 110, he quotes a different bit. The bit the early church knew was mostly the first verse. It begins, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make a footstool for your feet. And that's the bit everybody thought, oh, that's Jesus. But what the writer does here is he quotes verse 4 a little bit later, which says, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now you can see why nobody quotes that, because it's super weird, but... He quotes it because he wants to kind of say, aha, you see, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe that God has called Jesus to be the Messiah, then you already believe that he's a priest. Because the psalm that speaks about him becoming the Messiah also says that he's a priest forever. He wants his readers to know that Jesus has been appointed by God as a, a kind of eternal priest. And actually, if we read on to Hebrews chapter 7, he's going to say, and this is actually a better priesthood. For now, though, so that's the second requirement, that calling by God. For now, though, he, he, he moves on quite quickly to the other requirement, which is the priest's ability to represent the people. And we're going to stay on this point just a little bit longer. Here, just like with Jesus calling to be priest... The writer shows that Jesus meets this qualification, representing the people. He meets it in a way that is at first sight peculiar. It's different to how the priest normally met this requirement, but ultimately it's better. So look now at what he says from verse 7. Extraordinary, extraordinary passage here. During the days of Jesus' life on earth. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears 
to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a dense part of scripture, as I said, but what it says is profound, profound. A good way to understand what the writer's doing here, I think, is to see him as addressing a tricky theological question. Back in chapter four, verse 15, I'll skip back to it, it's probably like a million miles back in my slides. Back in chapter four, verse 15, he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. In a way, what he's doing in this passage here is explaining how this can be, how Jesus can still represent us, can still be a high priest and stand for us if he did not sin. Because think about it, if Jesus didn't sin, which he didn't, how can he really be like us? If he has no sin, isn't he ultimately too unlike us, too different from us to speak for us? Isn't he just too far above us, holier than us? We saw just before that it was partly the fact that they too were sinners that enabled Israel's priests to represent the people, to be gentle with them and understand them. Remember it says, they've got to offer sacrifices too. They share their weakness. But now, if that's not true of Jesus, how can he really understand us? And so how can he then be our high priest? But the writer's response is to say, actually he can. He can and, and it's even better. The assumption, he says, is false. Jesus became our high priest without sinning, he says, without ever compromising his obedience. But how? How can that be? Well, the answer the writer gives here is to show that Jesus experienced everything real and everything important in our experience even everything important in our experience of sin without being overcome by it, without giving way to it. Jesus experienced everything that matters in our struggle in this world without himself being defeated by it. He became able to stand in our place to represent us by completing a perfect work of suffering and obedience. Now this is what he's saying in that difficult bit, or the bit we may find confusing in verses eight and nine. Did you notice it? If you're used to going to church, you may have heard it and thought, what? Hear it again, verse eight, son though he was, which just means even though he was the son of God, 
He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And what probably worries some of us there is the idea of Jesus being made perfect. What is that saying? Does it mean he wasn't perfect and then he became perfect? That seems to be what it's saying. But actually, this is not talking about moral perfection. No, the idea is the idea of completeness of a work that had to be fully finished. The idea is that Jesus had a task, a work to do to perfect. The Greek word for perfect also means complete or whole. It says Jesus had a a path of obedience that had to be walked, that had to be finished perfectly. And that path was to enter into the human experience fully and completely, yet without being defeated by sin, in order to be able to represent us, to stand as our high priest in our place and offer sacrifice. And where we see this most powerfully, the writer says, where we see this most powerfully is in the prayers of Jesus. The prayers of Jesus. During the days, right at the beginning, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That sounds very much like the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you were here last week, you might remember. But it also speaks of the cross itself. At the end of the gospel stories of Jesus' life, we read about Jesus' praying and crying out. And on the cross, he cried out to God. It may be, though, that the writer of Hebrews actually knows of other traditions. He's remembering this about Jesus. What he's he's trying to say here is that those moments, those prayers, they give us something of profound importance. They give us an insight into the human struggle of Jesus right to the end as he prayed to his father, to God, to the very edge of death. All the time still submitting himself to God's will. You see, for Jesus to represent us, for Jesus to be our high priest, he didn't need to sin. Sin's not really real. It's a kind of failure. He didn't need that, but he did need, he did need to suffer. He needed to face what we face and to struggle against it to the end. You see, the baby Jesus, the baby Jesus could not have saved us. There's a thought. The baby Jesus could not have saved us. Not because he wasn't perfect, he was. But the baby Jesus could not have represented us. He could not have stood in our place. Well, if he was a baby, he wouldn't have stood at all. But even the toddler Jesus who could stand couldn't have stood in our place. Really one of us. right? Having faced, having endured and understood the real life and struggles we face, we face. 
the ba I mean, this is, this is a hypothetical. It's not real, right? I'm just trying to, but I'm trying to get, help, help us see the point, you see. It, even though the baby Jesus was already the son of God, no, there was a work to be done and he had to finish to perfect a work of obedience in order properly, truly to represent humanity and to offer the sacrifice of his own life for our sins. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that what we see in the last agonizing prayers of Jesus, they're the final, most difficult, finishing touches to a, a perfect work of obedience. And the completion of that work meant that Jesus became the perfect high priest, truly able to stand for us as our representative, knowing everything about your and my experience of life that matters. Everything that is us, he knows. But he was not defeated. And so he could offer the sacrifice that needed to be offered. Okay, now I know I took a long time over that last bit, um, but I did so because I think it's important and I think it is wonderfully good news. And this is just where I want to finish. Because what this means is that we have a priest, a, a, a really, really great priest. We have someone who knows us, who knows our life, our struggles, who knows the temptations we face, the fears we have, the dilemmas and difficulties we confront. He really knows them intimately, personally, as a real bodily human being. And yet he was not defeated by them. And so was able to rise from the dead and pass through the heavens into the presence of God. And he stands there now, ready to hear your prayers and to speak on your behalf. We have someone there in the presence of God who was able to make atonement for us once and for all and who now can be gentle with us, can speak for us in that most holy place. He will never be aloof or uncomprehending. He will never look at your sin and go, what? I, I don't even know what's going on there. No, he does know. He didn't, do, he didn't make the same choice as you made, but he does understand it. Because he suffered, he endured to the end. He, he endured in a way that none of us have ever had to or will ever had to, have to endure. We have a priest. Maybe you've never heard the good news of Christianity put in that way, right? Not, that's not the gospel outline you get when you tell Ah, let me tell you the good news, the gospel of Jesus, you have a priest. It's weird. But hear this now. Actually, this is 
This is the good news. It's the news that the distance has been covered, a bridge has been built. Someone has stood in the gap on our behalf, our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, having offered a sacrifice that was enough once and for all for our sins and for every single thing that makes you hold back and hesitate and give up. And you have him. You have him. So what then? Let us approach, let us approach, this is back in chapter 4, verse 6, 16, and this is where we'll end. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is what this truth should free us to do, brothers and sisters, to approach with confidence. Not with self-confidence. On our own, left to our own powers, we're right to be hesitant if you feel like you have a right to stand before God just because you're you know, a swell guy, think again. Many of our worries about our sins, our weaknesses, our unworthiness, many of them are onto something. But we have a priest who has entered heaven and has made atonement for us and who is there now representing us and who knows you and understands your weakness and that makes everything different and it makes God's throne a throne of grace rather than judgment. Do you hear the way he even just, he just calls it the, the throne of grace. That's what it is for you to approach God, the throne of grace. So approach, friends, approach, approach with confidence. If you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, don't fall into the trap of becoming hesitant, of thinking that what really matters are your sins and your failures. Don't fall into the trap of, of giving up trying because you think this time it's too much. God can't be bothered with me anymore. Approach with confidence. Your sins have not pushed you out of reach of God. They have not made his face hard towards you because you have a high priest who knows you and who went into heaven with you in his heart. See the throne open in mercy and grace to your prayers. And finally, can I just say, if you're not a Christian, hear the invitation that's here. Hear the invitation. Come, put your trust in Jesus. Give your life to him to follow him and to obey him. Let him be your high priest in a way that is what it is to be a Christian. You let him be the one who stands in the gap for you. Let him stand for you and present his sacrifice for your sins. And let him open the way to God all you have to do is ask him. Because he is the only one who can stand in that place. He is the only one who can truly represent us before the living God. Why not let him? 
I'll lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you as our great high priest who has gone through the heavens, who is not remote and far above us, though you are far above us, Lord, but you know us, you know our weaknesses, you endured to the end, and your perfect obedience made your sacrifice and risen life the source of eternal salvation. We come to you and we put our trust in you. And we thank you for opening the throne to us in grace. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.